Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Kevin Barton, district attorney in Washington County, is here. And Kevin and I actually go back a fair amount of time to the age of 18 when we were both at Gonzaga University. And then we were associates at the same law firm in downtown Portland. And then we reconnected when we were both in a Fox article that neither of us knew anything about because we actually don't watch or read Fox. Um, But they found it interesting to report on crime and crime rates and what people are doing right. And that's why they featured Kevin. And then that got picked up by the Daily Mail. So I was on a plane and Kevin sent me a text about the article. And then we were just kind of texting back and forth. And as we were texting, this Daily Mail article (laughs) comes in. Somebody sends that to me. I send that to him. And we've since uh, been able to reconnect. So, Kevin, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm glad that we reconnected. Thanks, Kristen. It's great to be here, and we've come a long way since Gonzaga <laughs> University in the 1990s. Go Zags. That's right. Um, can you talk a little bit about what differentiates Washington County from Multnomah County? Because that's what a lot of the news coverage that I've seen you featured in talks about. And I also think what you're doing in Washington County could be a good model for us and is the kind of thing that we should be doing. Well, thanks. And I guess I'll start by saying, you know, in Washington County, we prioritize safety uh, and we work collaboratively to get there. So the work of the DA's office is not work that we do on our own. It's work that we do in partnership with our sheriff, uh, with our county commissioners, with our police chiefs throughout the county in large cities like Beaverton and Hillsborough and small cities like King City in North Plains. But one thing that we all share in common in Washington County is ensuring that we can live, work, uh, and raise our families in a safe environment. And that's how things used to be in Multnomah County. Um, I've grown up in this area and um, raising my family now in Washington County, but I've lived in the Portland metropolitan area almost my entire life. Uh, And there was a time when Portland uh, was prized as a safe, livable, walkable city when you could go down to Saturday Market, You could go watch the Rose Festival Parade. You could camp out uh, to watch the parade. Um, And you could take your family uh, downtown and feel good about that. And unfortunately, we've lost that, but I believe it's something we can get back. How do we get it back? Well, like all complicated issues, there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that we can do. Uh, It takes leadership to start with, uh, leadership from uh, all levels of public um, uh, organizations, uh, from the mayor's office, from uh, the chiefs of police, from the sheriff, from the district attorney. Uh, But it also takes citizen and community involvement. Uh, You know, we are a country where our government is of, for, and by the people, which means that people have a responsibility, too, to step up uh, and to make their voices known and their desires known. And living in a safe community is fundamental for ensuring that all other aspects of our community can flourish. Businesses, um, uh, people living, people working, people raising their family, um, 
youth sports, all those things that we want to be able to do in our community, they need to have public safety as a fundamental baseline in order to begin and to flourish. When you say people have to step up, if for anybody listening at home who is wondering, well, what, what is he proposing that I do? What kinds of examples can you think of? Well, letting your voice be known is a really important aspect of that. So we all watch the news and we see how sometimes the loudest voices in the room uh, carry the most weight, whether they're yelling through megaphones or banging on drums or simply shouting people out. And that is perhaps, in my opinion, the most undemocratic form of protest uh, because it's um, a minority of individuals who are stifling the majority viewpoint uh, in a way that doesn't allow other people to voice their desires and to voice what they want. And sometimes it's a matter of letting your elected leaders know what's important to you, uh, whether that means showing up at a city council meeting, county commissioner meeting, or just simply reaching out with an email or a phone call, um, letting people know that what, what matters to you so that when our leaders make decisions, they're not tempted to simply follow the loudest uh, voices that might happen to be in their ear. What, what, what do you think happened to Portland and Multnomah County? Because you and I, when we were working downtown together, those were some of the best years I think I've ever had in Portland. And like you, I was I was born here. I grew up here too. And but those were the best years to me. I mean, I felt like l- l- every quadrant of the city was walkable. Certainly downtown was walkable. We really seemed to all enjoy downtown. Those of us who all worked downtown together. What happened? You know, it's hard to say and to trace it back to a single cause. I know that it's tempting to say this is the pandemic, uh, and I've heard a lot of leaders say it's the result of COVID. I've seen a lot of news coverage say, you know, it is the result of COVID, whatever it is, you know, whether that means businesses leaving or people no longer shopping uh, or people feeling comfortable to be downtown or in the city. Uh, But I believe that's a tremendous excuse. And COVID has become, in some ways, the great smokescreen that allows mediocre leadership um, to to hide. Uh, So it's not a result of COVID. It's the result of lots of little decisions and some big ones that have led us to where we are today. There's a quote that I sometimes like to go back to, and it goes something like this. It says, the theory of democracy is that the common person knows what they want and that they deserve to get it good and hard. And I think part of this is a self-inflicted wound. I think that people have made choices in who they've elected and what policies they've decided to to support. And um, everything was well-intentioned, I believe, or most of it was well-intentioned, but sometimes uh, we are a victim of the choices that we've made. Uh, That's the bad news. The good news is these are all um, human-made situations that we're in, man-made problems, um, man and woman-made problems. And what that means is if we created, we collectively created the situation we find ourselves in, it means that we can find a way out of it. And that means making good choices about the leaders, uh, not just in Portland, but statewide, um, about the leaders that we have and about the policies that we support and the laws that apply so that we can have that good society, that good community that we all truly want to live in. One of the questions that I got when I told people that you were coming on is they want to know how do we repeal 110. I mean, my understanding is the legislature would have to do that, the governor would have to do it, or we'd have to amass the same amount of signatures that is necessary to get that back on the ballot. There are two ways to do it. And so taking a step back, what is ballot measure 110? It's a law passed by the people. Um, And so it's a law that the people voted on by nearly 60% to become the law of the land. And in Oregon, there are two ways primarily that that 
things can become law. One is through the legislature, like we all learned about in high school. The legislature passes a law and the governor signs it. And the other way is through the citizen initiative process, the ballot measure process. And ballot measure 110 was that second way. Uh, and we can talk about who supported 110 and how much uh, money came in from outside of Oregon to support it, uh, because that is in itself, I think, an interesting uh, topic to dive into. But what we have now is it's the law of the land. Uh, I support an approach called amend it, don't end it. And what that means is there are some good aspects of 110. It's not all bad. Um, what gets the news is the bad parts, which are the decriminalization part with no additional treatment resources for individuals who desperately need treatment. And what gets the news is the reality that 110 deceived voters. People voted for it thinking they were voting for a treatment law. Uh, and in some ways, um, I draw hope from the fact that uh, this represents the best of intentions by Oregonians who thought they were voting for something that was progressive in a good way that would provide an avenue toward treatment for people who are most in need. The reality is 110 tricked the voters, uh, and the voters thought they were letting, it's kind of like the Trojan horse. We all remember that story where um, you, you let something in behind the city gates, and then in the middle of the night, uh, that's when the enemy comes out and everyone you know, reaps the consequences of that. And that's what 110 is doing to us right now. So there is a path forward. In order to amend but not end the good parts of it, there's one of two ways to get there. Either option A, the legislature can amend the law uh, and can tweak the parts that are not working, end the parts that are bad, and keep the parts that are good. Or there can be a new ballot measure. Uh, the new ballot measure can change the law entirely and make it whatever we like. If we had a decent... Um a, a governor who, who wanted to get rid of 110, let's say, you know, Betsy Johnson had been elected. Is that something she could have done by executive order? No, no, it's the law of the land. But the governor can uh, propose legislation and the governor can call for a special session. And I actually heard one of your previous guests, Mike Marshall, talk about how that is an avenue that could exist. And I believe that would be a good avenue to take. And so when you say amend it, don't end it, why why don't we end it? If we know that the money isn't going to treatment and we know it's going to safe smoking kits, why not just end it? Well, so certainly you can end it, and that would bring us back to where we were in 2019. Uh, 2019 is before ballot measure 110. But I don't think that where we were in 2019 was all that great either. Uh, I think where we were in 2019 was better than where we are now because it did provide treatment opportunities through the criminal justice system. But just about every criminal justice leader I know, every police officer, every police chief, every sheriff, every DA, uh, knows that the criminal justice system is a blunt instrument. And it's not the best instrument to use for someone who's struggling with addiction. And so if there are ways that we can promote treatment, which I think is what 110, at least that was what it was sold on to the people, and there are ways we can take money, uh, actually money from marijuana, ironically, and use that money to promote uh, rehabilitation and treatment and restoration for individuals who are struggling with that and allow for the 110 money to be used for direct treatment in that type of an amendment, then I think we can move 110 in a better direction so that we still aren't criminalizing people who are dealing with addiction, um, but we're giving them an avenue, a bridge toward the treatment that they currently don't have. And so we'd also have to build out infrastructure in the way that they did in Portugal, don't you think? Because right now, as my understanding is we only have two detox centers in the Portland area for Health and Hooper that are at all of any kind of size and nobody can ever get in there. Absolutely. That's the problem with 110. It tore down. So if you think of, um, if you think of uh, treatment like an island and there's a river to that island that you have to cross over and that river is addiction. 
The only bridge we had to that island before 110 for the vast majority of individuals who were using drugs uh, was the criminal justice system. It was the only way to motivate them to seek that treatment. We tore down that bridge, but we did it before we built up another bridge toward treatment. And that was the, the cardinal sin, the, the huge mistake. And the backers of 110, what they say is, they say, hey, give us time. This is a big change. We're, we're reimagining things. You can't expect change to happen overnight. And they're absolutely right. But what they're forgetting is that we're talking about lives. We're talking about human beings who are dying. And if I were to say to you, for example, on an airplane, hey, I'm a new pilot. We're about to land. Uh, these first few landings as a new pilot are going to be kind of rough. Um, you know, some of you might die, uh, but just give me time. We would all say, whoa, that is not okay. And so here with 110, if you think of it like we're dealing with human beings who are dying, overdosing every single day, the idea that we need to give it time is ludicrous. This is something that should have been up and running and ready to go from day one. Yeah, I'm, that really kind of says it all. The, the amount of deaths and, and overdoses that we're dealing with are pretty serious. What about the argument, of course, that they make that this is data-based and that people are going to do drugs anyway. We want to end the drug war. So decriminalization and handing them safe tools to use drugs is a way to engage in, they would say, safer or safe use. Well, how has it been working the last couple of years? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Look, anyone can hide behind data, and I, I go to so many meetings where I hear people talk about evidence-based this, data-based that. Again, it reminds me of another old expression, statistics don't lie, but statisticians do. And so people who you know couch their words in data-based and evidence-based science and findings, um, sometimes uh, what they're doing is they're ignoring the reality that's right in front of us. Well, and of course we have data right in front of us that for some reason anybody who's looking around seems to suddenly memory hole once quote-unquote harm reduction advocates start talking about data-based methods that, that work, we forget that we have data right in front of us and all we have to do is count up the exponentially increasing overdose deaths. So what do you think of this uh, camping ban that Portland has recently put in place? Is that going to assist at all in this homeless slash addiction slash mental health crisis we see playing out on the streets? You know, I don't know about the camping ban because it's it's non-criminal, so it's not in my, my lane of travel as the district attorney. I think the idea is it, it can be criminal, like it, at the third time or something. Well, I think what it would allow for is for an officer to cite someone for the crime of criminal trespass if right. they're camping on property that, that's that where they're not allowed to be. Um, and so in that sense, ultimately, there could be a crime that's committed. But the ban itself um, is not in itself a criminal ordinance or something that I'm directly involved in as the DA. What I think is that um, I think people have a right to live in a community um, where they're not having to deal with individuals who are um, on drugs, who are blocking sidewalks, who are making other individuals, other residents feel unsafe. At the same time, I mean, the human element of this is that we want every human being to live under a roof, and we want to do the best thing for people who are struggling with addiction or homelessness or whatever might have brought them to the point they are in life. So like all things in the criminal justice system, I think it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of ensuring that we provide the services for people who truly need them, who are down on their luck, are dealing with uh, challenges that uh, thankfully most of us don't have to deal with. 
At the same time, we have to remember that people have a right and an, a reasonable expectation to be able to go about their day in safety and not be afraid uh, and, and to not feel like their car won't be there when they get back, uh, to not feel like they might be accosted as they walk down the street. So we need to find that balance. You said it's what's interesting is who supported 110 and the, the, the money that went into it. What do you know about that? Well, I was very involved in the 110 battle. Uh, in fact, I had convinced myself early on that, that there's no way this law would pass. And so I have to admit, uh, and as we got closer to the actual election day and the polling results would come out, I started thinking, oh my goodness, this is not looking good. And then when the results came out and nearly 60% of voters voted for it, I actually felt a little bit sheepish. I thought, wow, how could I have misread that so deeply? Um, how could it be that six out of every 10 community members around me supported this? Um, was, am I that wrong about where people are? And one thing that I found extremely frustrating leading up to 110 was who was supporting it, who was promoting it. And it's primarily a group called the Drug Policy Alliance, or the DPA, which is um, an extremist group from the East Coast, from New York, uh, funded in part by George Soros, but not exclusively by George Soros. And I have uh, some history with George Soros because he's funded uh, the two opponents who I've run against in my two different DA races. So Both of them. Both I knew them. about Decker from the last race, but I didn't know about the one before. Yeah, so Soros and I are not on good terms, uh, to put it lightly. Um, but when I saw that the DPA was funding this, and when I say funding it, I'm talking about dumping in millions of dollars into this race. I was personally into the Into your race? I'm sorry, backing up. The DPA dumped millions of dollars into the ballot measure 110 um, election. The election, yeah. I think they funded at least five, maybe six million dollars in that election. It reminds me, um, I think it was Justice Brandeis that once uh, talked about how states can be the laboratories of democracy and this is a, a good thing where different states can try different experiments to see what might work um, and what may not work but what this was it was a perverted twist on that expression because unlike any other law where the people vote for it this is a law where we were being experimented upon so in some ways Oregon was very much the guinea pig in this laboratory and the experimenter was the DPA the Drug Policy Alliance who experimented on Oregon passed this law and then walked away, not living with the results. And now the rest of us are forced to live with the results of this, I think, failed experiment. I think one of the other things that a lot of people don't know about is that they set up a organization within Oregon called the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance, which is focused on ensuring, it says right on the website, ensuring that 110 stays in place. So even those of us who are interested in doing something like gathering signatures and doing a ballot measure to repeal or to amend 110, as you suggested, Kevin, I think the idea is hey, there's a signal there that you're going to have a really uphill battle because we've got people in place. We've got money in place to, to keep this organization funded. And funded it is. That thing is quoted all the time in media. Their people are quoted. They're out and about. They're active within the state. Um, they are certainly actively involved with Oregon Health Authority in implementing 110. And so there's this other piece to it that I think a lot of people don't know. There's this sort of claw 
within the state keeping that measure in place, That's which is another thing we'll have to think about in terms of, hey, if those of us who want a ballot measure to, or to repeal or to amend, to amend 110, and then the kind of money that we're talking about, I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars. And then the other thing that I think it's important to point out is they're not only funding DA races, they gave Tina Kotek tens of thousands of dollars. Um, they, they have a, a political action committee, the Drug Policy Alliance does. So their hand is in, it's, they, they're playing a bizarrely outside role in our state politics here in Oregon. They are, and I think that's disgusting. I think anytime you have gobs of money coming in to try and influence the results of a ballot measure or a race, I think that's something any common sense Oregonian should reject. You know, I don't know about that particular um, group that you mentioned a moment ago, um, but I do know that it's not just the ballot measure process that we can use to amend or to end 110. Uh, the legislature can do it anytime they like. Of course, they have to be in session, and as you and I are speaking right now, they're struggling to get back in session. But once they're in session or once there's a special session called, uh, they can choose to amend ballot measure 110. It just takes the political will to get in there, make the decisions that are best for Oregonians. But again, you have to... <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to be elect people who are interested in that. I mean, I think our the overwhelming majority of our Oregon legislature is either you know Ilhan Omar or Marjorie Taylor Greene on the other side, and so that's something else to think about, right, Kevin? Like you talk about leadership, start thinking about the ways in which maybe you think Oregon could be made better, and then when your legislative races come up. Think about who those people are who might make it better and who might be interested in the things you're interested in and do the kinds of things that Kevin talked about. Talk to these people that are running and find out if they're going to prioritize the kinds of things that you're interested in. Um, well, Kristen, let me, let me say that I think there are absolutely great legislators on both sides of the aisle, D's and R, in Oregon. And there I think, are, but there, I think there are few, 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 fewer I think there are fewer than the majority. We absolutely need more of them. But getting back to something I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that's where they need your help. Uh, and the help they need is they need the regular people, the people that are living their lives, they're focused every day on getting to work, getting the kids to school, that's exactly going right. to practice. They need to know that they have their support so that the squeaky wheels, so that the silent, that the, the, the loud drum bangers, the ones that are eating up all of the space, that they are drowned out by the silent majority. And I think we need to bring that silent majority forward so that the regular people have a voice in front of the legislature. Well, and you make a really good point, which is, look, there are ways to do this with the people that we currently have in there. For instance, the CONFAM bill to allow people to sleep on sidewalks in public places wherever they want, and then sue if, if they think it's not working out for them. So many people called in, wrote emails. There was so much negative media coverage about that that was national and international. We became an absolute spectacle that the hearing on that was canceled. They didn't even need to hear in-person testimony on that because they'd heard enough. And I think they were a little embarrassed by it. And so they canceled that hearing. And it's, that's a great example of how your calls and your emails and pleas for some sanity can work and maybe even get some media attention that helps kind of 
do a wake-up call to some of these people about what what are, what's really on everybody's mind. Stop being the silent majority. Um, and then, Kevin, you talked about some of the ways that Washington County is different than Multnomah County. Another way that I think that you're different is that you all use drug court for crimes that don't necessarily include Measure 11 crimes, which is where kind of the one place our drug court still exists here in Multnomah County. Well, I don't know about Multnomah County's court with Measure 11, uh, and I would be very concerned if Multnomah County had some sort of a specialty program with Measure 11 crimes, because those are the worst of the worst, uh, the worst sex crimes and the worst violent crimes. And in my opinion, the people who commit those crimes belong in prison. So that's our program in Washington County. You rape somebody, you assault somebody, you kidnap somebody, you murder somebody, you go to prison. Uh, we don't call it a specialty program, we just call it <laughs> the way it ought to be. However, um, it's all about balance in the justice system, in my opinion. And so we are dealing with a wide spectrum of people who commit crime. And there are crimes that occur on the other end of the spectrum where prison may not be the right answer where we know that there are um, things that we can do that have a higher likelihood of success than simply sending someone to jail or sending someone to prison. And in Washington County, we have a number of what we call specialty and treatment courts. So our oldest court is a court we call drug court. We actually recently changed the name to adult recovery court, but it's basically a drug court. And what we do with that court is we take people who have committed higher level property crimes. So they've, let's say, um, they've committed multiple thefts or multiple ID thefts, or they've broken into businesses. Uh, and we have tried things like jail in the past. We've tried other treatment programs in the past. And now they are eligible under Oregon law to go to prison. We give them one last opportunity to avoid a lengthy prison sentence and to go through a really hard multi-year program where at the end of the program, their odds of, of being successful for the rest of their lives are dramatically increased. And I go to every one of those graduation ceremonies, and without fail, what I hear time and time again from the graduates and from the alumni who come back is that the Washington County Drug Court Program quite literally saves lives. And it doesn't just save the lives of the participants, but it saves the lives of the families as well. Because just like a, a stone in a pond has those ripples that go out, when someone's involved in a crime, it impacts not just the victim of the crime, but it impacts everyone around the person who commits the crime, the kids, the, the, the parents, um, the, the, the spouse. And so the number of kids, for example, um, in our drug court program whose parents have graduated successfully, and now those kids don't have to go into foster care because the parents are still in their lives, and the odds of success for that child now to grow up and to be a regular law-abiding and successful member of society we have so many graduates who've got kids now that they're still with. So the benefits are multiple. That's our adult drug court program. And we have that same type of an approach for a veterans treatment court program for veterans who found themselves dealing with trauma like PTSD. You founded that, didn't you? We did, yes, about five years ago. Um, and we've been very successful. In fact, of all That's of our, amazing. our graduates, we've only had two who have recidivated, two graduates who have failed since they've graduated through that veterans treatment program. Do you know how many, two out of how many? Um, we're, I think we're around 40 or so now. That's um, great. And we have a mental health court program. Um, we have a special program to uh, keep parents and kids together. It's called our Family Sentencing Alternative Program. So again, to avoid foster care for kids. So these specialty courts and special programs, they have proven results that work, and we can measure it through a, a statistic called recidivism, where you can look to see 
how successful are people upon graduation. And recidivism means how, you know, is the person, once they're released from court supervision or, or drug court, is the person going to go out and commit another crime? That's right. So you want your recidivism number to be low. You don't want people to recidivate. That means they're going out and they're getting arrested or convicted of another crime down the road. Um, so again, it's all about balance, and it's about, as a prosecutor, uh, you want to have as many tools as you can in your tool belt. You, you want a hammer uh, because you need to use that hammer at times, but you want all the other tools in the spectrum so that when individuals come to you, you can pick the best tool for the situation in front of you, all with an eye toward promoting accountability and public safety um, and ensuring that victims are safe. Tell me about your mental health court. So mental health has been a real challenge uh, historically in the criminal justice system, and I'd say most acutely now in the last several years. So we have had a mental health court now for well over a decade, um, I'd say closer to 15 years. And our mental health court takes people who have been convicted of a crime, and it provides um, a specialty court setting, which means a judge who's the same judge that they meet with um, week after week after week. Uh, We work collaboratively with our community corrections program. These are the adult probation officers who essentially monitor people who've been convicted of a crime. Uh, And then the defense bar, so the attorneys for people who've been convicted of a crime and prosecutors, and they all come together, and we're all focused on maximizing the odds of success. So our, our shared goal is we want people to be successful on their probation, to try and help promote treatment for whatever mental health scenario that person might be dealing with, and to create stability in their lives so that they can move forward and, frankly, never see us again in the criminal justice system. That program has been, I'd say, working quite well, but we are struggling. We in Oregon are struggling with mental health treatment. It's no secret that Oregon ranks near the very bottom for access to mental health treatment for for our community members. And what we're seeing now is the results of that plus our addiction crisis. And as mental health and addiction often are co-occurring challenges that people are dealing with, uh, it's really having a tremendous impact on the criminal justice system. How do you, that's complicated, isn't it? How, if you've got somebody in drug court, and it's, I, I mean, to the extent you know how this works, I know, I know you're just the prosecutor, but I also know that because, um, you know, I don't know you that well, but well enough to know that you are interested in people. You're not just interested in prosecuting crime. I think that you're interested in people and you're interested in how they ultimately do and you want them to do well. Even all the defendants that are coming through your court, you want them to have some responsibility, but ultimately you want them to do well. We're all better off as these people are doing well. That's right. So how do you handle the instance that we're seeing over and over and over in Multnomah County, let's say, where there is this comorbidity of drug addiction, very severe, end stage, I would say, drug addiction, this fentanyl mostly at this point uh, due to the fact that it's literally in everything. And then, of course, we've got mental health issues on top of that because, at least according to the data I've seen, a lot of these people who are such severe addicts, they've got there's trauma in their life. And, of course, once they become addicted to drugs and they're out on the street or engaging in criminal behavior, there is trauma from all of that behavior that's occurring while addicted and, and then maybe we've got some severe stuff. Maybe we've got some schizophrenia. How do you, when, when they're in drug court, I know we've got this drug court and this mental health court, how do you deal with those comorbidity factors? Well, okay, there's a lot going on there. Yes. So the first thing to recognize is um, what is it that you can do? Right. Um, so 
You know, the reality is that the criminal justice system is at the end of a spectrum. And so yeah. there's only so much the criminal justice system and can... And it's after so much has happened, right? That, that's right. Something tragic has happened. So the best analogy I can give people is think about the emergency room in a hospital. And that is sort of what the criminal justice system is for society. So like the ER, it's always open. It'll always do what it can to help if you come to it. Um, but what it can do is necessarily limited. So imagine if you had, for example an influx of people coming to the local emergency room with heart attacks. Let's say all of a sudden there just were 10 times the number of people coming there with a heart attack. We would never say to the ER doctor, doctor, what are you doing wrong? Why are there so many people coming to you with heart attacks? Because we all know that the cause of a heart attack is beyond what happened at the moment that the heart attack occurs and when the person goes to the ER. We know it's diet, it's hereditary, it's genetics, it's lifestyle, it's a million different things all combined. And what we have is the response. The ER is the emergency response when something bad happens. That is what the criminal justice system and the DA's office in the justice system is. We are the emergency room that people come to after a lot of bad stuff has happened. And so what we try and do is when someone's with us, we try and set them up for success, both the victim and the offender, the defendant. Uh, we try and set them up so that the, the defendant is held accountable for the decisions that, that they've made. Um, the voluntary decisions, even if they're dealing with an addiction, even if they have a mental health um, scenario happening in their minds, people still make voluntary decisions to go out and commit a crime, to hurt somebody, to steal something, and they need to be held accountable for that. Also, if they're dealing with an addiction or a mental health scenario, we want to provide treatment to try and address that. Um, but at the end of the day, there's only so much we can do, and that's the truly frustrating part because we're dealing with the results of a society that hasn't provided enough resources or political will to address some of these root cause scenarios that are ending up here at the end of the spectrum in the emergency room of our Justice Department. What would you say the root cause scenarios are? Well, I think there are several. So certainly there's access to treatment. We need to ensure that people have access to mental health treatment and they need to have access to drug treatment. And I think it's well documented in multiple media articles that both scenarios in Oregon are dramatically suffering. We also need to understand why is it that we're seeing an increase in both drug use and in mental health um, uh, challenges in our society. And I came across a phenomenon uh, years ago that I believe holds some, um, some promise for trying to set us on a better path. And I'll, I'll explain here. My history as a prosecutor, I actually spent a decade handling child abuse cases. I ran that unit in our office. And uh, my day-to-day -day was essentially handling mostly child sex abuse cases, so the worst of the worst that can happen uh, to a child. And for the longest time, my focus was on prosecuting the criminal and helping out the victim in those horrible cases. I started thinking after a while, what's happening to these kids when they leave my office, these victims of these crimes when they leave my office? And I stumbled across this phenomenon that I started reading more about, and it's called Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs. And the idea behind ACEs is that the more trauma that a child has, uh, trauma can be caused by an abusive act, like a child abuse, but it can also be caused by exposure to abuse, like living in a home where domestic violence is present or can be caused by non-criminal things altogether, having people in your, in your household die, having a parent die. But the more trauma that a child is exposed to as that child is growing up and becoming a young adult, the higher the likelihood that that child will become an adult who's struggling with things like mental health or addiction or homelessness or joblessness or even some physical ailments. Um, and it's been well studied and well recognized. So in Washington County, we're actually embarking on this effort right now to try and see if we can promote a way to address ACEs. 
And I think there's an overused phrase that we hear about in our criminal justice world, and it's called criminal justice reform. We've heard that word so many times, and it can mean different things to different people. But I believe a transformational criminal justice reform would be finding a way to provide more resources for children and young adults who've experienced that trauma so that they're not in the system down the road as either victims later on in their life or defendants later on in their life. And we have a a program called a Family Peace Center. It's a program that will provide services for kids, for young adults, for even adults who are dealing with trauma in the home. Uh, and the legislature actually gave us $6.5 million uh, to purchase a building to, to move that program forward. So there are good legislators out there. Congratulations. Yeah, we're very excited about it. In fact, we're in the process That's now. amazing. In the process now of buying a building. And as the DA, I never thought I'd be part of a, an effort to buy a building. But what we're doing is we want to provide a way so that anyone dealing with trauma, especially in the home environment, has a place to go so that we can address ACEs, and I think that will be a transformational criminal justice reform. I'm so impressed with what you're doing. I admire that so much, Kevin. I'm so impressed with what you're doing. With mental health court, my understanding is, just from having a really severely mentally ill father who was homeless, my understanding is it can be very difficult to get people who are mentally ill to take medication, do you have any kind of understanding about how your mental health court is able to provide wraparound services to some of these people to incentivize that? Well, so our mental health court is directed at people who have been through the system and now they're at the, at the tail end. The so criminal system. At, through the criminal system. Right. So they've been convicted of a crime um, and they're on what's called probation. Every, most people who are convicted of crime, if they don't go to prison, they're placed on what's called probation, which essentially means that the court, through a probation officer, monitors the compliance of that individual through a series of conditions over a period of time, usually a couple of years. And so there's different ways. Think of it like a carrot and a stick approach toward incentivizing people to engage in what's called pro-social or good behavior. So you can provide rewards to somebody. So if, let's say, you're dealing with someone in a mental health court capacity and they show up every week when they're supposed to show up at therapy, they can get a reward like a gift card or a candy bar, just little things like that. Sometimes you use the stick, which is if you don't do this, then there will be a penalty. It's really no different than being a parent. Um, We all, as parents, have rewarded our children for good behavior, but we've also um, uh, punished our, our children for bad behavior. And it's about encouraging that good behavior and that pro-social um, activity so that we can move people toward better access to our treatment and hopefully a better life moving forward. The bigger challenge, though, right now that we're dealing with, um, and actually the reason that I've spent a lot of my time in Portland lately, where the Washington County DA is normally not, uh, is dealing with um, a, this, a, the, the Oregon State Hospital crisis. And what's happening with the Oregon State Hospital is when individuals um, are... Uh, not fit, they're not capable or mentally fit to stand trial. They need to be treated so they can be have their competency restored and they can be essentially able to be prosecuted. And a lack of resources at the Oregon State Hospital and in our communities is making it so that we are unable to have individuals restored in a timely manner. And it's resulted in a federal lawsuit, which is actually um, impacting the ability of our state hospital to, to function. And did you join in that? I did. Ever. So back in September of last year, so September of 2022, uh, three DAs in Oregon uh, joined into this federal lawsuit, the DA of Clackamas County, the DA of Marion County, and myself. 
and along with us, several circuit court judges um, joined, uh, two different counties joined, uh, and multiple different healthcare systems and hospitals joined. And essentially, um, we believed and we, we approached the federal court to join because we believe that we have valuable insight and opinions to offer as the federal court is trying to reshape uh, Oregon's mental health structure as it relates to the Oregon State Hospital. How did this all come about and, and what, what are the claims being made that are public? So the big challenge right now with the hospital is that it's not able to currently meet the demand that exists. And there are a variety of reasons for that. And in my opinion, one big reason is the capacity at the hospital hasn't kept pace with the need in Oregon. Another big reason is the mental health treatment opportunities that exist in our community um, before a crime is even committed uh, have fallen way below where they need to be, which is what you know, makes it so that Oregon's ranked near the very bottom when it comes to access to mental health, as I mentioned earlier. And so what's been happening, though, is when someone's charged with a crime and they're not currently fit to go to trial, but we believe they can be restored. In other words, their competency can be restored with some treatment toward making them fit to stand trial. The process to do that can involve that person receiving that restoration treatment either in the community locally or if they need what's called a hospital level of care at the Oregon State Hospital. What's been going on here in the last several years is the hospital has not been able to receive those people in a timely manner, and it's created long, long waits where people who are in need of mental health restoration treatment are simply sitting in a jail cell waiting to go to the hospital. And that those wait times have um, progressed beyond the acceptable limits, and that's what's brought the federal court in to say, wait a second, we need to do something immediately about this. I think that's great that you're getting involved in providing some idea about what's going on on the ground in these in these counties. Before we went on We Push Record, um, I was laughing because you said, well, there's no... <laughs> I was talking, we were, I was kind of talking about what a mess we're in here in Portland and how we can't seem to really figure out a solution to it. And you said, there's no mystery about what works. That's right. And it it made me laugh because it was so, it's also obvious to me, but for the people out there who are sort of thinking, well, you know, I sure think it's complicated or I, sh- I sure think that there's some kind of untangling to be done here. How would you, let's tease that out a little bit. When you say there's no mystery about what works, what does work in terms of a um, prosecutor's office that you think is functioning in the way that it should be? Well, any good prosecutor's office, as I said earlier, has a a lot of different tools in their tool belt. And so it's all a matter of having a competent, experienced uh, leader in a DA's office who knows what each tool does. And so if you think about it using that tool analogy, there are times when you need to use that hammer, as I said earlier, and that hammer belongs uh, for certain violent crimes and certain prolific property criminals who repeatedly steal cars, repeatedly break into homes, essentially terrorize our community. We need to use that hammer in those instances. But there are times when there are individuals where they're less of a public safety concern, and we know that we can intervene and intercede before they become that significant public safety concern, and we want to promote things like restoration and rehabilitation. Um, And so it's all a matter of ensuring that we get the right solution to the right problem. And in Washington County, uh, what I can say is that we have a history of doing that. So our mission statement, in fact, is seeking justice and protecting our community. 
And whenever I think about, boy, what's the right answer in this scenario, I sometimes come back to those two beacons uh, of our mission statement, seeking justice and protecting our community. So the seeking justice aspect means doing the right thing for the right reason. And protecting the community means ensuring that every decision you make is with an eye toward public safety. Am I making our community safer with this decision? Am I protecting the victim of this crime and future victims with this decision? And seeking justice, am I doing the right thing by our community, but also by the person who's been accused of a crime, the defendant? Because our obligation is to serve everyone, uh, including the person who's been accused of committing a crime. And so in Washington County, what we have is a history of doing just that. In fact, when I talk to community groups, um, and they'll sometimes ask me, how do you judge success? How do you measure success as a DA's office? There's two things that I look at. One is the objective statistics, the data. You know, what do the crime rate datas show? And the other one is the subjective. It's not data-driven. It's do you feel safe? And so I'll usually ask community members, well, let me ask you. You're sitting here in this room with me right now. Who here believes your car is going to be there when you walk back to it when we're done with the meeting? With, with its catalytic converter. <laughs> Who here felt safe um, walking here? Who went on a walk last night with their husband or their wife or their, their significant other and felt safe when they were going on a walk? Or who went to Washington Square or Bridgeport or fill-in-the-blank you know, shopping area and felt safe? That's the subjective part. The objective part is the data. And what the data shows is in Washington County, our combined property crime and our violent crime rates, according to the Oregon State Police, are approximately 30% lower than the state average and over 50% lower than Multnomah County. Now, is that just Washington, or is it Clackamas, too? So Clackamas County has excellent uh, crime rate data as well, and they're very similar in terms of you know their, their crime rates compared to Washington County. They're a very safe county. Um, but the data I was sharing was just Washington County. Yeah, that's incredible. Absolute model for the rest of the state. And I don't understand why we're not uh, waking up and, and taking a look at what you're doing over there. One of the questions that I got is, um, and I think this is from some of the people who were paying attention to your last couple of races and likely from Washington County residents, where does the money go when you're raising it for a DA's race? And why is it so dang expensive? Oh, man. Uh, I have to tell you, so I think the last race I had run for before I ran for DA might have been at Gonzaga with you. I think I was a student senator or something like that. Um, And I'm not sure the race went very well when I ran for that in college. Um, But when I ran for DA um, for the very first time, which would have been for 2018, it was at a moment in time in our nation when all of a sudden DA's races were becoming hyper-partisan. And I think that's an awful thing for partisan politics to be injected into Isn't a DA's race. Isn't it a race. nonpartisan position? A DA in Oregon is a nonpartisan position. It's not that way everywhere in the nation. So DAs in other states can run as a Republican or a Democrat. But the question I have for your listeners is, what does a Republican DA look like? And what does a Democrat DA look like? And how should that have any bearing on the work that we do in the courthouse, in the justice system? And the answer is, there should be no difference. You should not be, in my opinion, able to tell if the district attorney or the deputy district attorney or the police officer or the judge is a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, an Independent, or none of the above. None of that matters. 
And even though we run in a nonpartisan way, those partisan politics and the extremist politics, they, they try and get into the DA races. And that's what we started to see several years ago with George Soros and others going around the nation and dumping gobs of money into DA races to try and buy the DA position. And why would that be happening, you might be wondering. And the answer is this. If you want to accomplish your version of radical criminal justice change or reform, you can do it the hard way or the easy way. The hard way is getting different legislators to be elected and passing bills and laws to change the laws that you may not like. That's the hard way. That takes time. It takes political buy-in. And frankly, it's annoying if you want to do something quickly. The easy way is if you can short-circuit the system and find key junction points in the system where you can elect a single person who can simply say, I'm not going to follow those laws. So if you can pick a DA who says, you know what, I don't like those 10 laws, I'm just not going to prosecute those. It's like they don't even exist. So if a DA takes office and says, we're not going to prosecute these crimes, we're not going to prosecute, for example, these riot-related crimes, we're not going to prosecute these sex-related crimes, then all of a sudden you've accomplished your version of criminal justice reform in a lot faster method. And that's what George Soros and others have been doing around the nation. So when I first ran in 2018, I was encountering a wave of that movement that was happening. And when I found out my opponent was being funded by Soros, I I panicked at first. I wasn't sure what that would mean because having not run for anything before, you know, how many millionaires do I know? And the answer at that time was none. Um, And so DA races have become, unfortunately, incredibly expensive ventures. Did you know that things were becoming, quote-unquote, partisan? Of course, even though we have a nonpartisan system in Oregon. Did you know that there was this divide before you decided to run for DA? Well, I was aware of it in the sense that we're all aware generally that things are happening. Um, But I wasn't intimately familiar with it and what it meant on a day-to-day basis until I ran for DA. And actually, one of the things that really... Um, struck me is as when I was running for DA and I was trying to do some th- simple things like setting up my website. Just think about for a moment all the stuff someone might need to do if they're going to run for office. A bank account, a PO box, a website, a committee. Who do you call to run your social media? Who do you call to get yard signs? All that stuff that goes along with an election. Um, the reality in Oregon is most of the people who do those things, they either do it for the Republicans or for the Democrats. And so if you're neither, um, it's kind of hard to find someone that'll do it for you because you're not part of either club. And so I never thought about that. Yeah, it was actually kind of hard. And so, in fact, I remember vividly I had signed up with this one individual. I'm not going to say a name uh, to help me out with my social media because I didn't even have a Facebook account personally. I just, well, you know, I didn't have that. So I was trying to figure out, how do I do this? And I called this one individual, and he said, oh, yeah, I can help you out. And then he called me back about a week later and said, oh, I'm sorry, something came up. And it occurred to me I wasn't part of his club. So that was a challenge. Yeah, now that I think about it, you know, and we're starting to learn about this through the William Week investigation into LaMotta and Emerge and things like that. There are these machines that get built behind these partisan political groups behind the Democrats, behind the, I mean, to a certain extent behind the Republicans, they don't seem to have have it together as much in the state in general, but certainly not in the Portland area. But, you know, in other states, you see where the Republicans are more fortified. Certainly here in in Oregon, they are. And like, there's that Emerge group, right, Which which is like a training ground for all these people that are coming up. And like you said, they've got their marching orders and all their soldiers, and it's, they're gonna align 
along party lines, and then these nonpartisan races, people are kind of falling through the cracks unless people are willing to step up and assist. And so there's probably a fair amount of calories that go into finding these people, and there are probably professionals that you can hire to find them, but they're this is all costing money. So this is where part of that fundraising would go? Absolutely. And I want to be clear. So it took me a little bit to figure out how to do it when I was first running. You have to ramp up, yeah. But there are people, there are good people out there, both good Republicans and Democrats and independents who are out there and who are willing to help out. And so when I was running, I was blown away um, at how people can be so generous, not just with the money they contribute, but with the expertise and the advice they can give. Um, and again, I benefited from that, from really good Republicans and really good Democrats and really good nonpartisan people in Oregon. But make no mistake about it, at the end of the day, the, ca- the car needs gas to go. And um, money needs to come in for any type of a candidate, especially in a contested DA race, to be able to have a chance of being successful. And your listeners might be wondering, well, what does the money go toward? What is the money actually, if I, if I send money in, what does it pay for? And the reality is um, you need thousands of dollars to, to buy things that are incredibly expensive. So one of the biggest line items in my budget was sending out literature in the mail to people. And I have to Isn't apologize. Isn't that weird? Because I yeah. would just think, well, how much does a leaflet cost? I mean, you go to Kinko's, right? And just press the color button. You're sending out hundreds of thousands of leaflets. And so, in fact, I would have people volunteer, hey, can I help you stuff envelopes? And the reality is it was such a big operation dealing with an entire county. It's beyond what a single group of volunteers can do in stuffing envelopes. We're talking about going to mailing and printing houses that will use machines to be able to send out hundreds of thousands of letters. And what I was going to say a moment ago is I felt a little bad because I, like everybody else, I live here as well. And we all hate getting in the mail um, the mail that, you know, the junk mail, the, the, ca- yeah, it's getting spammed with all the, we hate it. Stuff. Uh, yeah. and I hate it. And <laughs> I, the same thing on TV, all of those incessant ads. But it's important. Well, but here's the thing. It works. Yeah, it and does work. At the end of the day, the goal is to get the message to people who will vote. So social media is a great way to get messages out. And now I'd say more than ever, people are paying attention to what's on social media because everyone's got their phone in their pocket. But the people that tend to reliably vote are not necessarily the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings. It's the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. So we want to get the message out to everyone in the community so that they understand what they're voting on. I mean, how many times have we all looked at a ballot for a race and said, I don't know who any of these people are? Um, And, of course, we all have our voters' pamphlet that we look at at our kitchen table when we vote. That's a key area as well. But getting the message out to educate people what's going on, especially in a DA's race, and educating people about the connection between public safety and livability in a race that historically people haven't paid a lot of attention to. Who's their DA? I think now we're in a different world than we were five or ten years ago, but most people historically don't know who the DA is. Yeah, I, I loved that world. I'd like to live in a city where I don't know my city councilors and I don't need to know them and I don't know the name of the DA, but that's not where uh, I, I live. Um, so why did you run for DA and why did you feel like you needed to get involved? Well, I have to tell you, when I joined the DA's office, um, I did it because I was truly drawn to trying cases and I wanted to be in court. And um, to this day, I think that's been the most enjoyable part of my job as an attorney, especially as a prosecutor. 
Um, there's no better feeling than being able to help someone out. And that's what it truly is. It's service. You're helping out the community. You're helping out the crime victim. Uh, and you're helping to turn something wrong right, to give somebody some sense of justice after something horrible has happened for all the good reasons. And that was those were great times when I was able to be a line prosecutor. And that, in my opinion, that's God's work because that is tough, tough work that we have men and women doing um, in Portland, in Washington County, in Clackamas County, throughout Oregon. Um, when our previous DA in my office announced that he was retiring, um, I was very concerned about what would mean what's happening next for our office and for our community. And at a very personal level, I live in Washington County. My wife and I are raising our kids in Washington County, and I knew from a firsthand experience how important that role of DA was. And so I decided uh, to run because I believed that I could do it, and I thought I could do it very well in a way that would keep the community safe, especially as we are headed towards some pretty turbulent waters, which we've seen over the last several years. Well, obviously, you've done an incredible job. I'm just really grateful for your service. I know the people in Washington County are grateful for your service. And one of the things that um, I, one of the questions that I got was sort of about your history in terms of your legal career from like people who might want to go to law school, people who are in law school. And I think it's important to explain to those people that if you're doing civil work, like I'm still doing, like Kevin and I were doing at our old law firm, you're not going to try cases at the rate you are if you're doing criminal work, particularly public criminal work. Private criminal work, maybe probably not as much. Public, certainly. I mean, we've got this um, public defender system, and then we have the DA system, and both of those are ways to serve, and if you're interested in doing trial work, I think the best way to cut your teeth. Do you still have a system where law students can work in your office? We do. In fact, that's how I started. Um, I was a law clerk in the Multnomah County DA's office. I did that too. I did it in King County. I, and I did that um, over 20 years ago. Isn't that um, amazing? And it was, as a law student, it was great because you could actually get in there and, and try cases. And, and see you what try them like. by yourself. Oh, yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's it, like at the hospital when they hand you the baby. For those parents out there, when they everybody's been through this. You know, they hand you the baby when with your first one. Of course, by the second one, it's like, uh, right. <laughs> we got this. Um, we're trepidatious about going through it again, but we got it. And you're driving away. And I remember turning to my husband who, you know, we, we all, we all work together. I remember turning to him and saying, I can't believe you're letting us leave the hospital with this baby. That's how I felt as a law student when you, eventually they're with you and then they take off and they're off doing their own set of cases and they're not babysitting you anymore in court. And I remember thinking, I can't believe they're just going to let me try this. Or to put it in terms that everyone would understand, imagine driver's ed, but essentially the, <laughs> someone goes with you just once and says, okay, uh, you know, be safe. Good, good That's luck. Right. So it is a sink or swim um, mentality, and that's true, you know, in the criminal justice system because things are moving so fast. So fast. There's a crush of cases coming in. You got to move, move on, move on, move on. So it's a sink or swim mentality, and I fell in love with that work. So I, as you kind of alluded to, I started out doing civil work after I clerked in the Multnomah County DA's office. I worked in a in a law firm in downtown Portland where the two of us worked together. It was a great place to be, a wonderful place to, to learn how to be a lawyer and to and be a And for mentor. civil work, we tried a lot of cases That's for right. 
civil work. Yeah, in fact, I had, I think, in my five years there, I had six or seven jury trials, which for a civil world is a lot. But for me, it was just a taste. It was like having a couple M&Ms and thinking, I want the whole bag. I, I wanted more of that or a couple of potato chips and wanting more. And so I looked for where I could find more of it. And I ended up in the Washington County DA's office and, again, fell in love with the work that we do, so much to the point where when the opportunity came to run, I thought, this is what I want to do because I just believe in our mission so deeply. So one of the things that I like about you is that, you, I mean, many things, but one, one of the things I like about you and the way that you use the office, your office, to lead and to serve is I've noticed in articles and when you go on television, you say things like Multnomah County is suffering and that needs to change immediately. It makes me so happy when you say that because so often I hear or I get I get comments or I get emails or, or messages from people who say, you know, Portland's going to burn, let it go, everybody should move away, let it destroy itself, just move to Eastern Oregon, move to the suburbs, move to Washington County, move to Clackamas County. And the reason I like your messaging is you're, you're not abandoning Portland and Multnomah County. Why would it be important for Portland and Multnomah County to do well if you're off in, you know, Washington County with your you know, fancy crime statistics <laughs> and your drug, your working drug court and your mental health court. Like, why not just go quietly into the night with your successes? Well, there are so many reasons. I mean, so first of all, as goes Portland, so goes Oregon. Uh, Portland is the economic and cultural hub of our state, has always been, and I believe always will be. And we should not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Portland needs to succeed. There's no doubt about that. And it can succeed, and I'm sure it will succeed. It's going through a really difficult time, but we don't abandon someone or a city when it's going through a difficult time. And I don't live in Portland. I don't work in Portland, but um, I consider myself from Portland. In fact, a couple of years ago during COVID, my family, we went on a road trip, the quintessential road trip to Yellowstone with my kids and the minivan and Old Faithful and all that stuff. And I had this moment that I remember. It was actually by Old Faithful, and we ran into this other family, and we just started talking, total strangers, and it was the typical, where are you from? And I said, I was from Portland. And in my life, throughout my entire life, whenever I've said that to anybody else, I would routinely get, oh, wow, that's cool. Or, ooh, what's that like? Instead, I got this, this person recoiled and said, oh, what's that like? And I never experienced that before, and it really took me aback. And so I don't want that. I don't want that for my, my family. I don't want that for my kids. And I don't think anybody wants that. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, let it burn. But that's giving up. And that, to me, is a failure. Um, the other reason it needs to succeed is it's our neighbor. So if you think of it like neighbors on a street, you know, I live in my house. And my next-door neighbor, yeah, it's a different house. And they've got their own property. But I don't want their house to fall apart. I don't want their property to become dilapidated because that's going to start to impact me and my house. And so we've already seen that happening with Portland. Crime doesn't pay attention to the county line. Crime comes in and out of county lines. It comes into Washington County, into Clackamas County. And so all of us want Portland to succeed so our state can and so our communities can. Well, we saw that on the, a video that KGW published, and I'll link to it in the show notes, where they've got these people in the back of a, well, it was, it was two scenarios. One was somebody in the back of a cop car and he's driving past the way that he would normally go to jail in Multnomah County. And he says, well, where are we going? 
And the police officer says, we're going to jail. And he says, I, we're going the wrong way. I think we just passed the jail. And the police officer says, you're in Washington County. And he goes, oh, my God. And the police officer goes, yep, you screwed up, buddy. <laughs> Music to my ears. <laughs> and then there was another vignette. It was so good. It was There was another vignette, and uh, there was a couple. And, and they may have been, I think they were talking about Washington County, but they might have been talking about Clackamas. Anyway, it was either Clackamas or Washington. They're, in, they're talking. The woman's in jail. Uh, presumably she's talking to her boyfriend. And she says, well, when can you get me out of here? And he says, I I don't know. It's not Multnomah County. If you were in Multnomah County, you'd be out right now. She goes, I know, I know. I screwed up. <laughs> I screwed up. I didn't stay in Multnomah County. So, let, yeah, uh, we've all got to get on the same page. And I appreciate how you talked about how important Portland and Multnomah County are to the state. Because I agree with you. They're the anchor. They're... Uh, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people in the state, and I understand there are people who want to secede. And, you know, if, if I were in the minority in the way that those people are, I, I, I get it. But the point is, you know, we d- we decide everything here in Portland. We decide the governor. This is where everybody lives. This is in Portland Metro generally is the hub of business. And so we have to do well for the rest of the state to do well. And I think that also impacts Washington, California and, and surrounding areas. So it, we've got to get healthy. Kevin, I'm really glad that you came in. Is there anything you want to leave us with? I know you're a busy guy. you got to get back to running that Washington County District Attorney's <laughs> Office. Well, I just want to say, first, thank you for the invitation to be here. It's good to good to see you again and great to be on the podcast. But second to your listeners, again, I truly mean it. Get involved, let your voices be known. And it can be as something as simple as sending an email to your city councilor, to your county commissioner. Very easy to find email addresses these days. Type out a quick email, letting them know what's important to you because that truly does matter. It does make a difference. Thanks, Kevin.